Well, we are going to uh, turn our attention to God's Word now, and so I want to begin the same way I begin every week, which is by encouraging you to open your Bibles, uh, this time to John chapter 2. This is already week number 6 of our series in the Gospel of John. We're flying through it, and we are going to jump right into the passage this morning. I'm going to read John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. I am going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. And this is what it says to us. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Well, part of the reason I wanted to jump right into the passage this morning is because it raises all sorts of questions, uh, or at least it should, and I think we can best see that once we actually read it. This is a miracle story. John tells us, in fact, that this is the first of the miracles or first of the signs that Jesus did. Now, as you read through the Gospel of John, you will find that it does not contain the same proliferation of miracles that the other Gospels have. The first half of John's Gospel is actually structured around seven signs that Jesus does. So here in chapter 2, he changes water into wine. In chapter 4, he will heal a royal official's son. In chapter 5, he will heal a paralytic. In chapter 6, he will miraculously feed more than 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. In chapter 6, he will also walk on water. In chapter 9, he will heal a man who had been blind from birth. And in chapter 11, he will raise Lazarus from the dead. Those are the seven signs in the Gospel of John. But when you compare this sign or this miracle with the other six, it seems kind of inconsequential by comparison. I mean, healing a paralytic, curing someone of lifelong blindness, raising someone from the dead, those seem like the types of miracles that we would expect from someone who claimed to be the savior of the world. But changing water into wine in the middle of a wedding celebration, I mean, it sounds more like a party trick by comparison. Now, it's not a party trick. Listen again to verse 11. It says, This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. 
and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus did this miracle, or this sign, as a way to manifest or reveal his glory. But here's the question. How does changing water into wine in the middle of a wedding celebration manifest the glory of Jesus? Well, it's a fair question. And there's a good reason for asking it because the answer is not immediately obvious. Now, part of the reason the answer is not immediately obvious is because there is no explanation from Jesus or from John in terms of what this miracle was supposed to signify. What was the meaning of it? Now, when you look at the other signs that Jesus does in the Gospel of John, you will find that they're usually accompanied by some sort of explanation or some sort of discourse so in John chapter 6, when Jesus performs the miracle, when he, the similar to this one, he miraculously feeds 5,000 people with just a, a few loaves of bread and a couple fish. And that miracle took place during the Jewish Passover feast. And it is followed by a discourse or an extended piece of teaching from Jesus that comes on the heels of this miracle. And it is in that discourse where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So even if at first glance we didn't know what that miracle was supposed to signify, we would know the moment Jesus tells us, look, that kind of bread can satisfy you for a short time, but I'm the bread of life. I can satisfy all of your needs, all of your longings. Or in chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, that seems like the greatest of the miracles that Jesus did or the culmination of the signs that he did. And immediately on the heels of that miracle, we find a discourse from Jesus. And it is in that discourse that he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So we understand the purpose of that miracle. It is to reveal Jesus' glory, that he is the one who gives life. He is the one who raises from the dead. That's the normal pattern in the gospel of John. We get the miracle or the sign followed by some sort of explanation. This is what it means. Even outside the gospel of John, it seems somewhat easier to understand the purpose of Jesus' miracles than it does here in John chapter 2, with the first of his miracles. So in the Gospel of Matthew, you often get a number of miracle stories strung together. You can look it up for yourself later, but Matthew chapters 8 and 9 are action-packed chapters. There are 10 miracles recorded in those two chapters. Jesus heals a leper, a paralyzed servant. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He calms a storm by rebuking the wind and the waves. He casts demons out of two men with just a word. In short, Jesus demonstrates his authority over disease, his authority over disaster, and his authority over the demonic realm. And maybe most of all, he demonstrates his authority to forgive sin. So we can look at those 10 stories or even just one of those stories and it's not hard to see how this would have revealed or manifested the glory of Jesus. So back to our story and our question. How does changing water into wine in the middle of a wedding celebration manifest the glory of Jesus? So let me try to answer that question by highlighting one general observation 
two more specific observations and then one direct application for all of us. And let me just start with the general observation, and that is that Jesus' miracles always pointed to something beyond themselves. So the question here is really the broad question. What was the point of Jesus' miracles or signs? Now, Jesus never met a disease that he could not cure. He never met a birth defect that he could not reverse or a demon he could not exercise. But he did not heal everyone living in the first century or even everyone living in Israel in the first century. So what are we to make of that? Well, I think what we're supposed to make of that is that these miracles are actually pictures of something greater. They are snapshots of salvation. They're windows that give us a glimpse of the salvation Jesus will make available to all people. As one writer put it, the Messiah was not going to save the world by miraculous band-aid interventions, a storm calmed here, a crowd fed there, a mother-in-law cured back down the road. Rather, it was going to be saved by means of a deeper, darker, left-handed mystery at the center of which lay his own death. Now, this actually might be the easiest to see in the Gospel of John because John does not use the word miracles. He uses the word signs. A sign signifies something or points to something. But again, if a sign signifies something, what does this sign signify? Now, that's the question I'm trying to drill into. I know I'm taking my sweet time to get to the answer. But because there's no explanation given, people have suggested a number of different things that this first sign might be about. Some have said, well, it's the setting that's important. Jesus performed this sign at a wedding, and the fact that he did it at a wedding signifies that Jesus honors the institution of marriage. Now, it is true that though single himself, Jesus honored the institution of marriage. You might remember the answer he gave when he was asked about divorce. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus does honor marriage. I mean, even his presence at this wedding, in a sense, honors the institution of marriage. But that's not enough to carry the weight of what this passage is about. Some have said, well, this event highlights the fact that Jesus cares about the small things or the ordinary things in life. So the culture of Israel in the first century was a shame-based culture. For this couple, who was just starting out on their married life together, to run out of wine at their wedding would have resulted in great shame, great social disgrace. Everyone in Cana would have known this was the couple who disgraced themselves at their wedding because they failed to provide proper hospitality for their guests. There's even some evidence to suggest that in the first century, you could sue a host who did not live up to their obligations of hospitality. Now, again, it is true that Jesus cares about ordinary things. It's true that he cares about our financial troubles or our shame. But I don't think that's the thing that's being signified or pointed to by this miracle or sign. Others have said that this event simply signifies that Jesus was the life of the party. 
Wherever he went, joy went with him. So when the wine was running out, he made sure there was an abundant supply. And again, there is some truth to that. Now, Jesus wasn't a party animal. His philosophy wasn't, I can turn this parking lot into a party with an ice chest and some cold beer man, right? He's not country music, Jesus. But Jesus also wasn't an ascetic. He wasn't some sort of austere religious figure who avoided social gatherings and lived in the desert. I've said this to you before, and it's especially true when you read the Gospel of Luke. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And one writer describes Jesus' mission strategy like this. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. Look, all of that is true. And I think that might get a bit closer to the meaning of this miracle, but I still don't think that's quite it. So as always, we need to look at the actual text itself for the answer. And I think you get part of the answer of what this sign was about by looking at the interaction that took place between Jesus and his mother. Listen again to verses 3 and 4. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, it is Family Sunday. There are more kids than usual with us in the gathering today. So maybe the first thing I need to say about these verses is don't try this at home, kids. Right? Like when your mom asks you, hey, why don't you clean your room up? Don't say, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, actually, what Jesus says here is not quite as harsh as it sounds. There is a bit of a rebuke in it. But Jesus wasn't being rude to his mom. There's a scene right near the end of John's gospel when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he addresses his mother the same way. John 19, it says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. It's actually a tender exchange. Jesus wants to make sure that his mom will be looked after by John. But I think part of what's interesting about this exchange between Jesus and his mother is that she says, you know, they've they've run out of wine. He says, woman, what does it have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then he goes and performs the sign. So what was that about? Well, this is not the only time we read about something like that in John's gospel. In chapter 7, we read now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. And then it says, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So the issue in John chapter 7 is that the way his brothers 
think he should reveal himself is not the way he plans on revealing himself. I think the same thing is happening here in John chapter 2. I mean, we're not even actually sure what it was that Mary expected when she tells Jesus they've run out of wine. This was the first of his signs. So it's not like she expected a miracle. You know, can't you just make it rain wine from heaven or something? And what Jesus is saying in his mild rebuke of his mother is something along the lines of, you don't really know what you're asking. I am going to reveal myself. But I'm going to do it in my time and on my terms. And one of those terms seems to have been that Jesus performed this sign in such a way that only his disciples and a few others even knew about it. The head waiter didn't know where the wine came from. The bridegroom didn't know where the wine came from. And the result of the sign is that his disciples put their faith in him. So this miracle, this sign, wasn't ultimately about the provision of wine at a wedding. It was about the manifestation of Jesus' glory to his disciples. And the result was... They put their faith in him. So the general observation is that Jesus' miracles always pointed to something beyond the miracle itself. So let's look now at the specific ways in which this sign pointed beyond itself. And there's two main ways. I think the first of them is that it shows us that Jesus inaugurates something new. This is something we actually see throughout this passage and throughout the Gospel of John. Our passage begins with the words, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, last week, we looked at the way John laid out the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Right? Verse 29, the next day. Verse 35, the next day. Verse 43, the next day. Now it's three more days. On top of that, what we actually have here is the completion of one week of ministry in Jesus' life. So there's all these echoes of creation in John chapter 1 and now beginning in chapter 2. And I think what John wants us to understand is that Jesus is doing a new work of creation. The transformation of water into wine is symbolic of the kind of transformation that Jesus wants to do in our lives. But it's actually more than just that Jesus wants to do a work of transformation in our lives. John wants us to know that Jesus is actually bringing about something entirely new. So listen again to verses 6 and 7. It says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So there were six stone water jars, and they were there for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, those water jugs were not there for hygienic purposes, but for cleansing and purification. And purification was a big deal in the first century. The religious leaders on one occasion chastised Jesus for what they perceived to be a lackadaisical approach to purification, to ritual purification. The Gospel of Matthew records this exchange. 
Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now again, their concern was not hygiene, your hands are dirty. Their concern was ritual purification. This idea actually had its roots in the Old Testament. The book of Exodus gave detailed instructions about the fact that the priests were supposed to wash both their feet and their hands before they could serve in the tabernacle. It was a symbolic way of saying that the priests had to be cleansed before they were fit for service in the tabernacle or before they were fit to serve God. But by the time you get to the first century, the Pharisees had extended that by saying, look, everyone should make themselves ceremonially clean before they eat. In fact, the Mishnah, which was a collection of rabbinical writings, has an entire section, 4,000 words in English translations, with detailed instructions about how you're supposed to wash your hands to fulfill the obligation of this ritual purification or cleansing. The only way to be acceptable before God was to go through some sort of ritual purification ceremony. Now, I think we actually understand what this type of ritual purification might have looked like now better than we did two years ago. Because of the you must squirt more hand sanitizer on you before you enter this store ritual that we all have to go through, right? I mean, I just put it on at the last store. I didn't touch anybody or anything, but you want me to put more on. Yes, because you might have defiled yourself in those 15 steps from that store to this store, right? So we just go through this ceremony, constantly cleansing ourselves. Not a perfect analogy, I know. But the thinking at the time was, look, you might have defiled yourself in some way. You need to cleanse yourself again. Maybe you said something. Maybe you did something. And the only way to make yourself clean before God was to go through that type of ritual. And so the Jews would keep these sorts of water jars on hand to make sure everything and everyone was purified, cleansed. And most scholars think that the purification jars here in John 6 represent the entire system of Jewish ceremonial observance. Jesus comes along and fills them with wine. The old day... And the old way of relating to God or being made pure before God have come to an end. Remember what we read in chapter 1. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is inaugurating something new. A new way to be right with God. I mentioned this already, but this newness is actually at the heart of John's gospel. So this section that we're going to be in for the next few weeks, chapters 2 to 4, is fascinating in this regard, this contrast between old and new. So not to go spoiler alert, but there's a steady contrast in these chapters between the old order and the new order. The new things that Jesus is inaugurating. So next week, we're going to wrap up chapter 2. And in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, there is a discussion between Jesus and the religious leaders about the temple. Now, the temple was everything to the Jewish religion. This is the place you went to be made right with God. And Jesus is going to say, I'm the temple. I'm the new temple. The way to be made right with God is through me. 
In chapter 3, Jesus is going to have a discussion with a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus represents that old order. I mean, he had the right pedigree, the right credentials, the right training. And what Jesus says to him is, you must be born again or born anew. In chapter 4, this woman from Samaria is going to come to Jacob's well to draw water. Now, that's the well that was dug by the patriarch Jacob. And Jesus is going to say to her, look, this water will satisfy your thirst for a short time, but the kind of water I provide is something entirely new. It's living water. And then as he continues to talk with her, they're going to have a discussion about the appropriate place to worship. Is it in Jerusalem or is it on Mount Gerizim? And what Jesus is going to say is what God is seeking is worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is inaugurating something completely new. He's not just sort of putting window dressing on something old. He's not adding spice to bland food. Jesus is doing something new. You need new wine. You need a new heart. You need a new temple. You need new water. You need new birth. And what we need to understand is that what Jesus offers is the only cure for dead end or treadmill religion. That kind of religion can be summed up with, you've got to do the right rituals. You've got to say the right things. You've got to look the right way. And by the way, that is not only found in institutional religion. I've been slowly making my way through a book entitled Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World. And that book highlights the fact that while a growing number of people self-identify as religious nuns, that's N-O-N-E, Religious rites are found everywhere. In one chapter, the author highlights the new religion of the wellness culture and profiles the company SoulCycle. Now, if you don't know about SoulCycle, it's an American thing, but it's essentially a glorified spin class. And in one paragraph of that chapter, she says this, SoulCycle's classes, which cost $34 before you add the required clip-in cycling shoes, transform physical fitness into ethereal asceticism. The instructors shout out motivational mantras from a raised platform. Participants gather in a semicircle, spinning furiously while following ever more complex choreography, which largely includes push-ups on the bicycle that resemble genuflections. The riders are referred to as a pack, a crew, a posse, a cult, a gang, a community, and a soul. There are signs all over the studio which declare the rules. One sign that's headlined soul etiquette warns would-be cyclers that there is a direct correlation between your energy and your neighbor's ride. If you want to do your own thing, please don't ride in the front row. See, that's religion. That's literally a treadmill religion or a spin cycle religion. You need to go through these rituals. You need to do it this way. You need to dress like this. You need to perform like this. Then your soul will experience what it's supposed to experience. But Jesus doesn't offer us a treadmill religion. 
Jesus gives us new wine, a new temple, and a new heart. Jesus inaugurates something new. Third thing we see here is that Jesus supplies something quantitatively and qualitatively better. I don't know if you ever played the game Bigger and Better. It was a staple of youth groups in the 1980s and 90s. Basically, you would be put into a group and you would be given a small item, maybe a rubber duck or something like that, and you would then go around the neighborhood door to door and you would try to trade that thing for something bigger and better. And whoever returned with the item that was the biggest and the bestest, they won the game. Jesus is giving something bigger and better here. He's offering something that's bigger and better, or he supplies that which is quantitatively and qualitatively better. So Jesus has the jars filled to the brim. These jars held somewhere, it says, between 20 and 30 gallons each. That is between 120 and 180 gallons altogether. I think the equivalent would be something like 800 bottles of wine. Now, Jewish wedding feasts often lasted up to a week, but that's a lot of wine. Now, wine in the first century was somewhat diluted from what it is today, but still, that's a lot of wine. So what is the significance of that? I think some of the background to it can be found in the Old Testament prophets. I've selected just three excerpts which highlight the way the Old Testament prophets spoke about the Messianic age to come. So here's the prophet Jeremiah describing what this would be like. He said, They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Right? The Messianic age is going to be this time where there's an abundance of everything, including the wine. Or the prophet Hosea, who says it this way, They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Maybe it's clearest in the book of Amos. Amos says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And what those Old Testament prophets were predicting was that the Messianic age would be a time when the wine would flow freely, or there'd be such an abundance. So Jesus' miracle revealed that he was announcing the dawn of the Messianic age. Jesus supplies that which is quantitatively better. But it wasn't just the amount of wine that was striking. Listen to the comment of the head waiter in verse 10, because this is the key. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Right, so he's a bit startled. I mean, he serves at these things all the time. And usually what happens 
is that the host serves the best wine first, and then after everyone has drunk enough that they won't notice, he pulls out the two-buck chuck from Trader Joe's. That's not what happened here. The stress is laid on the supreme quality of this wine that Jesus provided. Jesus gives that which is qualitatively better. You know, one of the most beloved verses in the Gospel of John is loved for a good reason. Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, that's the kind of life Jesus offers. A life that is quantitatively better. It's eternal life. And a life that is qualitatively better. It's abundant life. And then the final thing to notice from this passage is that the proper response to the revelation of Jesus' glory is to put our trust in him. Verse 11 says this, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. His disciples, the the literal translation would be his disciples believed into him. I think a good paraphrase of that is that they put their trust in him. This was the ultimate goal of the signs that Jesus did. At the end of his gospel, John tells us this is why he wrote the gospel. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why did Jesus change the water into wine? It is so that you and I might believe in order that we might have life in his name. So let me close with a question or a couple of questions. Question number one is, have you put your trust in Jesus? Jesus has revealed himself to you. Maybe you've come to the place of saying, yes, I believe that's true. I do, I do believe he's the son of God. But have you placed your trust in him? Question number two is similar but different. Are you placing your trust in Jesus? Now remember, the disciples had already come to at least some kind of faith in Jesus. Nathaniel had confessed, you are the son of God, you're the king of Israel. So this is not so much a recommitment of their lives as it is a demonstration of what it is that we need to do constantly in our lives. We continually need to place our trust, our confidence in Jesus. So what are those things that you are not trusting Jesus with today and why not? All of us need to trust in Jesus. We need to take the same approach the disciples did and believe into him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that is our instructor, and we thank you that even when we come to a passage that maybe on first read is not 
super clear, but we thank you for how your word interprets itself and how uh, we glean insights from what you've said elsewhere. And so, Lord, I pray as we reflect on this, the first of Jesus' signs, changing water to wine, as we think about the transformation that Jesus gives, the newness that he brings, the bigger and better that he offers us, Lord, that abundant life. God, would we on a continual basis, place our trust in Jesus. Rather than relying on ourselves and our wisdom, would we trust in his provision and his grace? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.